common for us to sin in our reaction to those difficult circumstances. In the midst of difficulty, we are tempted to say, God is doing something evil to me. And so verses 13 and 14 tell us, in the midst of the external circumstance, no one should say, God is tempting me. But we are tempted, and in fact, succumb to that temptation to blame Him for the sin that we commit in the midst of the difficulty that He allows ultimately for our good. And in sinning, often we become angry. Angry with God and angry with others. That's why verse 19 tells us that we should be eager to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then verse 20 says, because the anger of man, man's anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. The proper course for us is to remember that God intends only good from the trial. And what is that good? Verse 4 tells us that we would be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And to remember that not only does God intend only good in the midst of the trial, but the character of this God is only capable of good. And that's what verse 17 teaches. That every good and every perfect gift comes from God. Sin conceives death, verse 15 says. But God, this good God, who is only capable of good gifts, has given us a conception of birth unto new life, according to verse 18. And this birth to new life leads to new living. And that new life came to us through the word of truth verse 18 says. And that's why then verse 19 follows up and says, therefore each of you should be eager to hear, ready to hear. To hear what? To hear this word of God, which according to verse 18, this word of truth by which we have been given life. Now that's the flow of James' argument thus far. But it's very possible to hear with our ears and not put into practice with our lives. As a matter of fact, it is so possible that James warns against that very thing, beginning in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. It's probable that many in our churches and in our church included do this very thing week after week. Only hear, but not apply. Chris Fabry, in his humorous but biting and convicting book called The 77 Habits of Highly Ineffective Christians. You know there's Stephen Covey who passed away this past week, but he wrote the book The 7 Habits of Highly Effective People. 
Fabry wrote, The 77 Habits of Highly Ineffective Christians. And he does it with humor, but as I say, in a biting way as well. And he lists these 77 habits, and he writes them from the perspective of, if you really want to be ineffective, this is what you should do. And habit number 10 of the 77, if you want to be ineffective, is be a hearer only. And this is what he says. It may surprise you that some of the most ineffective Christians today learn more about the Bible than anyone else. Let me explain. Those who constantly sit under the teaching of the Word have a wonderful opportunity for mediocrity. These are people who most likely have five or more Bibles as well as a shelf of Christian books and commentaries and they say amen while listening to their Christian radio station with the car windows down, volume up. These people teach classes, they answer questions correctly, they pray in an inordinately long time on Wednesday evening. But the pivotal word for them is here, for they only listen to the word and don't do it in their lives. If you want to be ineffective, follow their example. Become filled with the desire to hear facts and view charts and maps about the Bible so you can tell others all the neat information that you've gleaned, but do not do the word. Go away from each conference or seminar feeling very good about transcribing the entire outline and all the scriptural scriptural references, but don't do a thing about changing your own life. If you encounter an admonition against a particular sin, simply look past the passage until you come to something you're already doing right. This, of course, he says, is like a man who looks in a mirror at a restaurant and fails to remove the broccoli lodged between his teeth, But that same man is quick to point out the creamed corn on his neighbor's lapel. Hear as much about Christianity as you can, but do as little as possible so it will have the least effect in your own life. And he says the one scripture you want to avoid at all costs if you want to be ineffective is James 1, verses 22 through 25. And our churches are filled with people who hear but do not do. And we need God's help to turn our hearts to His Word, turn our hearts to His Word in addition to our ears to His Word. Let's ask for His help. Our God, we bow before Your Word. We bow in this sacred moment with our heads. I pray, Lord God, that all of us, myself included, will bow our hearts before your word as well. Help us leave this place, not as we came, for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. What I'd like to do is fairly briefly and quickly explain what verses 22 through 25 are telling us. And then I want to spend some time offering what I believe is a major root cause of our failure to apply what we hear and read on a regular basis. In explaining what the passage says, I've provided an outline for you that was inserted in your program. I invite you to take a look at that. And I say, first of all there, that this passage is teaching that we should desire change from God's Word. We should desire change from God's Word. 
Verse 22 tells us, do not merely listen to the Word. And when it says do not merely listen, it's telling us that listening is necessary, but don't only listen. So listening is necessary, but you cannot benefit from God's Word as intended unless you put it into practice. But hearing it or reading it is indispensable. It's necessary. Now, hearing is often spoken of in the pages of your New Testament, and that's because the people to whom the letters of our New Testament were first, were first given did not have their own copies of God's Word. Have you ever thought of that? And so these would be people sitting in an assembly who received a letter from James. But they don't have their own copy of that letter. And so often it is, hear the Word of God now, as it is being read out loud in the assembly. The Bible itself was under construction. It's being written. It was not completed. And so a letter would be written and circulated and read in the assembly. And so that would be a special occasion, as you might imagine. We've received a letter from James. Now here, as God's Word is read among us. When gathering for the Word, though, friends, ceases to be a special occasion, then we will take for granted what takes place when we come together. I fear that's one of the reasons that so many of us are hearers rather than doers. We have Bibles. We read the Bible, many of us, every day, have been for years. We hear it every week. But unlike these first hearers, we now become mundane in the hearing and we take it for granted. And James is telling us that hearing is necessary. Do not be merely hearers. You must hear. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient in order to achieve God's purposes. It says, do not merely listen to the word. And the word for listen in verse 22 was used in New Testament times of those who attended a lecture but were not followers of the lecturer. They would attend a speech, but they were not disciples of the one who was giving the speech. You know, friends, it is very possible to hear Christ's word, to sit and hear Christ's word even regularly, and not be a follower of the Christ whose word it is. We can attend a speech by someone with whom we disagree, and we can hear what they say, but not act on it. Presumably, those who claim to follow Christ, though, will obey what they hear from Him. But James tells us there is sometimes this disconnect between the hearing and the doing. And not just sometimes, but it's my experience that often there is that disconnect. And that's partly because we've adopted an approach in evangelical churches that says, I can be an auditor of the Word, but feel no, no obligation to change according to what the Word says. An auditor. You know, the audio. I hear it. If you audit a class, it means you don't have to do anything but hear it. You just sit in on it. And many Christians in evangelical churches think that it's okay to just be auditors of the Word. And just hear what it says. But nothing happens. And not just on Sunday. 
But each time we're confronted with God's Word as we open it in our own reading, in our own devotions, there should be an eagerness to see what God says and a desire to change based upon what it says. That's why verse 22 says then, do not merely listen. Don't be an auditor. And so deceive yourselves. Dear friends, we are deceiving ourselves about our standing with God, about our relationship with Christ, if we are simply hearing the word but not putting it into effect. That's why one commentator said, many determine their godliness by the quality of hearing or reading instead of action and obedience. God's word is to be acted upon and to be obeyed. And so we can be people who take copious notes about what we hear and what we study. But often we take those notes so that we can use them on other people. We can be people who have a strict devotional or Bible reading program, but see little or no change in our own lives. Let me ask you, how long have you personally struggled with the same junk, the same internal struggles that then become external in your relationships? even though week after week and perhaps day after day you're confronted with the Word of God, but failing to apply what you've heard. We should desire change from God's Word. Desire it. Be eager for it. And why? Because I say in your outline, the Bible is intended for such change. It's intended for change. We see that this is God's intention, that we change when we hear and read the Word of God because of what is said about failure to do that. Failure to change when confronted with the Word of God is presented in this passage as foolishness. Now, you all remember that wisdom is applying the truth as intended. Foolishness, then, in turn, is failure to use what God has given for God's intended purpose. God has given His Word for the purpose of change. Failure, therefore, to do so is foolishness. And it's so obviously foolish. James says it's like somebody who looks in a mirror, sees the change that's needed to his appearance, but he walks away and his appearance remains unchanged. That's how foolish it is. So verse 23 says, anyone who listens but does not do is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. Now when it says looks in verse 23, and then if you notice in verse 25, there is a contrast, but there's another kind of man or woman who, notice, looks, but notice what it says, looks intently. So verse 23 says you've got someone who looks, and then in verse 25, in contrast to that foolish person, you've got someone who looks intently. Now the reason is there are two different words that are used in those verses. And the one in verse 23 is a word used of a more casual glance. The other used in verse 25 is of a studied gaze upon what's being observed. 
And so he is like one who takes a kind of casual glance, looking at himself in a mirror. Now, mirrors in New Testament times were placed on tables horizontally. And so in order to look into the mirror, it was necessary to bend down. And so this person in verse 23 is bending down at least long enough to see that there's change that needs to take place, but there's no desire to linger, to, to gaze upon it, to study what needs to happen, and then to take care to correct it. The Bible is intended for change. And failure to use it as intended is as foolish as a man looking in the mirror, seeing that his appearance is disheveled, but walking away without making any of those changes. The Bible is intended for change, but I say in your outline, we should be intentional about that change. The Bible is intended for change, and in order for that change to occur, we have to be intentional about it. So verse 25 says, but in contrast to this foolish man, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, But doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. He looks intently, not a casual glance. He studies what he is seeing and what needs to change. And further, he continues to do so. Now, the mirrors that they had in those days were not glass mirrors like we have. The mirrors that we're used to using did not come into existence until at least a thousand years after this was written. The mirrors that James is speaking of were typically polished bronze, sometimes silver, sometimes gold. But if you really wanted to see yourself, you you had to look intently. And so this person, this wise person now, in contrast to the fool who does not use God's word for its intended purpose of change, he looks intently, he studies what it is he is seeing. And for him, verse 25 says, It's the perfect law that gives freedom. For him, it is law. That means it's not optional. Dear friend, where did we ever get the idea that I can audit what Almighty God has to say and it is optional? as to whether or not I will obey what he has told me? This person looks at it and says, this is God's law unto me. It's a very good law, as we're going to see, but nonetheless, it is God's law. It is God's command. It is what Almighty God says. And I cannot simply say, that's not for me. I don't feel like doing that. This is a law not of bondage but one that gives freedom, and I'll explain that a bit later. So if the Bible is given for this good purpose of change, and it is, then why do we so often fail to look to it for that purpose? Why do so many of us fail to use the Bible for its intended purpose? Well, we saw two weeks ago, Last week we had Ordinance Sunday, so we had an interruption in our series. But two weeks ago we saw 
that the reason we fail to do this may well be because there is not the spiritual life in us that comes from the word of truth according to verse 18. And I spent a bit of time on that two weeks ago, so I won't belabor it here, but I just say to you, dear friend, if there's not the desire to not only hear and read God's word, but to see it as God's good law to you and to change accordingly, it may be because there is not the necessary spiritual life in us that comes from the word of truth according to verse 18 and then causes the word of God to resonate within us. It's been planted within us, according to verse 21, if we have been born again. So one reason may be that that new birth has not occurred. But it's possible that we are born again. But that we've not appropriated the implications of the gospel. So that now looking into Scripture, painful though it often is, is something that we can and we delight to do because we have appropriated the implications of the good news. The reason that we fail to gladly look into the Bible, for many of us, is because we know it will show us ugly things about ourselves. And our pride is too delicate to be harmed in that way. We want to be told how good we are. Joel Osteen can fill a stadium, a stadium, because people want to be told how good they are. And we know that we're not going to find how good we are in the Bible. So Joel Osteen has to preach something else. And he does. We want to be affirmed in our high view of ourselves. And we know we're not going to find that in the Bible. We want people around us who will agree that we're right. And it's my husband who's the problem. And when I find those people who are willing to tell me not what I want to hear, but what I need to hear, I don't want to be around those people anymore. In other words, the reason that we don't look to the Bible for answers about me is I have a high view of me that the Bible does not reflect. That's a bad mirror then. Give me a mirror that will tell me and show me what I want to see. And so that's a mirror I avoid. I hear, but I don't do. Because what I read there paints an ugly self-portrait then I cannot bear to look at. I am absolutely convinced that there are many, many, many professing Christians who fit into the category that I've just described. The Bible tells us that it was given to us for the purpose of causing some pain, but ultimately for great gain. You're all familiar with the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Now those four things that are given there of Scripture, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, 
Those are in a logical sequence. You can't get them out of order, otherwise it won't work. You can't be corrected until you're first rebuked. You can't be rebuked until you're first taught. So you're taught and you're rebuked and you're corrected and you're trained. So the Word of God is saying that God has breathed it to us. He has given it to us. And it's useful for these four things in order. Teaching. And so what happens is I hear or I read the Word of God and I am confronted with truth. And I use that word advisedly. I am confronted. Because the teaching of the Word of God invariably shows me a gap between God's standard and where I am. And so there's a confrontation with the truth. A confrontation for good purposes, to be sure, but a confrontation nonetheless. And then when I am taught the Word of God, I am brought before the mirror of the Word of God, then secondly, there is a rebuke that takes place. And the word that's translated rebuke in 2 Timothy 3.16 is the word that's elsewhere in your New Testament translated conviction. So you could substitute there, the Bible teaches me and then it convicts me. Well, who wants conviction? We want happy talk. We want to be told what we want to hear. And God says, I tell you what you need to hear. And I teach you what you need to be taught. And as a result, you then are rebuked, you are convicted. But this good God does not leave us there. He then gives us instructions on how to cause to stand, correct what has previously fallen. And then gives us instructions on discipline, training, in righteousness. And so God says, I've given you the Bible for the purpose of change. That change is involves pain of necessity when we are convicted, when we are rebuked. But for some of us, I'm afraid for many of us, we can't handle that truth because our pride will not allow it. That's why verse 21 that we saw two weeks ago says that, verse 19, be eager to hear swift to hear, slow to speak. But then verse 21 says, and humbly accept the word planted in you. Verse 21. Humbly. There is no chance that you or I or any of us will change according to the dictates of the word of God if we do not have this first prerequisite of humility. My pride is not so fragile that Almighty God cannot tell me the truth about myself. But I'm afraid for so many of us, our pride blocks our receptivity to the Word of God. And rather than humbly accepting, we are hearers rather than doers. I'd like to talk a bit about how our pride operates and how it can keep us from applying the truth of the Bible. I recently read a little book, very helpful to me, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Freedom in forgetting about yourself. And it's said that the human ego, our human pride, has four characteristics that I'd like to go through with you. The first one is this, our sinful egos, our pride, 
is empty. Empty. You see, until the 20th century, friends, most people thought that the root of evil was not that people thought too little of themselves, but that people thought too highly of themselves. The Greek word is hubris for that. But in our day and recently, in modern times, we've reversed that completely. We say that the reason that people behave in evil ways is because they think too little of themselves, because they lack self-esteem. Completely foreign to the Bible. And so you are going to hear explanations about the man who shot up the theater over the coming days, about things he didn't get. He was rejected in life. He didn't have girlfriends. He was a loner, all of that. So he had low self-esteem, and he took it out in aggression and shooting people. Now think about this. The reason the guy shot people is because he thought he deserved better. And the reason he thought he deserved better is because of his ego. But our egos are empty unless our egos are properly trained and filled with God's truth. And as sinful people, they are not by definition. And therefore, we fill our egos with someone or something other than God in order to try to get the identity that we want. And so we create an inflated view of ourselves. We want people to know this inflated view of ourselves. It's in danger all the time of being deflated. And so we can be easily hurt. Our feelings can be easily hurt. Why? Because we're prideful. Because we've inflated our egos. The sinful ego is, first of all, empty, and we fill it with something other than the truth of God about ourselves. It's also painful. Our egos are hurt very easily. Why is that? Why regularly do we find ourselves having our, our egos hurt? in various ways. Well, it's because it's already in pain. There's already something wrong with it. Think about this. The parts of your body, you don't notice the parts of your body until there's something wrong with them. Truth is, I don't notice my toes until there's something wrong with them. And the reason you notice your ego, the reason your ego is so, is so prone to hurt, is because there's already something wrong with it. We're always drawing attention to our ego just like the toes draw attention to themselves when there's something wrong with them. We're always drawing attention to ourselves and to our ego because there's something wrong with it. And I say we're always doing that. Which means our egos are quite busy. Comparing. Comparing ourselves to other people. C.S. Lewis said this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. 
If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. So we do stuff. Often stuff that we don't really take any particular pleasure in because we want to look good we, and we want to look better. Hey, look, if you want to know where your heart is about you and about the stuff you care about, Take a look at your Facebook account. From a Christian standpoint, Facebook should be called Heartbook because it displays our hearts. So whatever it is you are constantly putting out there, it's what you want people to think and know about you. Take a close look at that. Take a close look at what it is you want people to think and know about your children. The sinful ego is empty and painful, but very active. And with all of that, very fragile. You see, a superiority complex is always in danger of being deflated. And an inferiority complex is deflated already. Now let me ask you. Would you like to be able to go by a mirror in a mall and not admire, but also not be repulsed because you're not thinking about yourself all the time? Yet in the words of that great theologian, Carly Simon, you're so vain. And you probably think this sermon's about you. I mean, you walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf, it was apricot. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself go on. Wouldn't you like to be free from such focus on yourself? And I'm going to show you someone in our closing moments who was free from such focus upon himself. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now notice what he's saying. I don't care what people say about me. I don't have to load up my Facebook page so I look cool. I don't care what people say about me. Now, the world would say, you're right, Paul. That is right. Who cares what they say? What do they know? The only thing that matters is what you say about yourself. Be what you think you should be and then go do it. Who cares about everybody else? And Paul says, no, I don't care what they say, but here's the other thing. I don't care what I say either. Because it's not what any human being says. It's what Almighty God says. Dear friend, until we come to the point that we can approach the Word of God with the humility that says, it doesn't matter what anyone else says but God. 
And this Paul who says, I care very little if I'm judged by you. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. This Paul who said that was able to look into the mirror squarely and see himself as he was. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 that I am the worst of sinners. You all remember that? Paul was a really cool guy, actually. He was a guy who could put together a really impressive resume. And yet he says, I'm the worst of sinners. He can look squarely into the mirror of Scripture and say, yes, God is right about me. How can he do that? And why can't we do it? Here's why. Because Paul did not connect his sin with his identity. Paul did not connect his sin with his identity. His sin does not destroy his identity. And his accomplishments are also not his identity. He reached a place where his ego no longer gives attention to itself. Paul has reached a point that he's no longer thinking of himself. Whether he does something wrong or he does something good, he's not connecting it to himself anymore. To whom is it connected? To whom is that sin connected? For you. To whom are those good things connected? For you. And Paul has said they are only connected to one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And until you come to the point, until I come to the point that I see my identity squarely and only in Jesus, I'll continue to reject stuff that God has said. I'll continue to pass over it because it's too painful. I won't be able to face it because somehow I think I need to perform in order to make up for it. And nothing could be further from gospel Christianity. Nothing. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It's not needing to connect things to myself, whether good or bad. It's not thinking more of myself. It's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And so let me give you a test. How do you take criticism? You see, the humble person can take criticism, can invite criticism. It may be true, it may not, but they're okay with it. They're secure in who they are because messing up is not my identity. I mess up all the time. Sinning is not my identity. My spiritual resume is not my identity. That's why Paul can say, I care very little. Now notice, I have the word innocent highlighted. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. That word translated innocent is the word that is elsewhere translated in your New Testament, justify. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't justify me. I can't justify myself. So my friends, 
who justifies you? So that you can look squarely in the mirror. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that we deserve so that we can now stand in Him complete and we don't attach our identity to our sin or to our good works, but only to Him. When you get that, you can look in the mirror that is the Word of God. And by His grace, begin to change things that you've been carrying around forever because you've been, because you've been trying to justify yourself. That's why the Bible says these blessed words. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why verse 25 calls it the Bible, the perfect law of freedom. It set me free to really see who I am and what my problems are. It sets me free from the opinion of others. It sets me free from my own opinion. In closing, I want to encourage you to consider that there are people that God places in this assembly. Many of us walk away week after week unchanged, but there are people that God has placed in this assembly who come every week, evidently every week, by their demeanor, by their eagerness, and by their putting into practice what they hear every single week. Did you all know that? I'm thankful to God that I could give you a long list of such people. And these people would be mortified if they knew I was going to mention their names. But I'm going to tell you, try to be like some of these people. In their eagerness to hear the Word of God and their gospel humility before the Word of God. Try to be like Jean and Kim LaChapelle. Try to be like Gary and Nancy Brock. Try to be like Angie Goff, who comes by herself with her little ones every week to hear what God says and to put it into practice in her difficult life. Like Brother Ken Gilbert. Like the whole Johnson family. Cliff and Mary and Jake, every week, eager to hear what God has to say. And she would be mortified that I'm mentioning her name. She is with my girls at Lake Michigan. It's a wonder I was able to even dress myself today without my wife being with me. But be like Kimmy Girl, who every week says to me what she got out of what she heard. That girl has heard me say the same stuff for years. And she still gets something out of it. When she and I have occasion to be in counseling sessions, when we're, I'm counseling a female, I often have Kim with me. And after we're done, Kim says, oh, that struck me so deeply. She's not the one being counseled. But every time she hears the word of God, she's being counseled. Friends, you have many other people like that. And many of us come week after week and we are unchanged and unmoved. We're going to pray. But I believe if we would get a hold of this, that God would begin to change the hearts of our people, begin to mend relationships that have been broken in our homes for years, 
but they have not been mended because of our refusal to look at ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God. Instead, look at yourself through the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus. Let's bow together. Well, dear Jesus, we ask you to work in our hearts to help us to leave this place changed for having looked into the mirror of the Word. Help us, Lord, not to be forgetful hearers, but to be doers of your Word. To your glory, as you sanctify our hearts individually and from the inside out, you begin to transform us. That that humility, that gospel humility that's prerequisite for hearing begins to manifest itself in husbands and wives who haven't had real conversations with each other in years. Between parents and children, between employers and employees, oh Lord Jesus, work in us to the root of our hearts so that we radically show something different to an unlooking world and thus bring honor and glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.